Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Mark's gospel is really like a slideshow. He seems to just have one snapshot after another, and he rushes on quickly from one little scene to another. And we're going to be uh, looking at four quick snapshots, uh, beginning at Mark verse one, verse thirty-two. Mark one, verse thirty-two. Let me just remind you quickly of the theme: the kingdom of God. Our Lord's very first sermon after two thousand years of expectation, after thirty years of waiting, uh, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then during those 40 days, when he, after his resurrection, he spent with his disciples, what was he doing? He was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then you can follow the same theme all the way through the Acts of the Apostles and coming to the very last chapter of Acts. Here's the Apostle Paul under house arrest in a rented premises, people coming to him. What is he doing? He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then we fast forward to the very last book of the Bible, coming to that climax of God's saving purposes, where we read that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible. It is the gospel. And so we come today, we were thinking on day one of that promise of the one who would come to restore God's kingly rule in his world the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we were thinking yesterday of how before Christ could restore that kingly rule, he must first disarm and uh, bind the strong man and uh, spoil his goods and open up the way for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Today our theme is, what are the priorities of the kingdom? What are the most important things that we should be doing as servants of the kingdom? And so we come to uh, Mark chapter 1 and verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also, for that is why I came. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Now Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, and as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly 
but stayed outside in a lonely place, and yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Then the last incident. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, so many gathered uh, so that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the man, the paralyzed man, uh, on the mat that he was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, What does this fellow talk? Why does he talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. They praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Amen. Let me take you back just as perhaps a key verse this morning to one verse, and that's Mark chapter 1 and verse 38. Jesus said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. Let's take a moment to pray as we come now to God's Word. Father, we've been singing a lovely hymn expressing our longing that you would speak to us through your word, and so we pray now that the Holy Spirit would uh, give light to our understanding and would touch our hearts and would stimulate our wills and our energies in your service. For your name's sake, amen. Our church and little church in Drogheda has the privilege of having a partnership with Christians in East Africa, in Kenya where together we're working to try and improve the lives of uh, a group of children with disabilities, helping them to get to school and uh, have some reconstructive surgery and various other things that help make their life uh, a life with hope and, and uh, a future. But last time we went over, uh, we tried to organize a special clinic with the Kikuyu Hospital. Uh, some of the doctors there had been working with the children that we, we know. And decided to have a day clinic for the whole community. And the doctors from Nairobi and the medical staff, the nurses and others would come, and they would give their services free. And we, with the help of some very generous donors, were able to uh, provide the finance for the medicines required. And so we waited. It was a, an experiment. There's a, a clinic right out in the rural area. There's a church, school, clinic. The clinic was in an awful state. It was an old grey slab building, so one of our projects of the, that part of the team was to paint this building and make it fresh and clean. Uh, so we awaited the, the morning of the free clinic, and I think it was probably 10 o'clock it was supposed to open up, but from 7 o'clock in the morning, we could see people filtering out down the little mud lanes through the sugarcane plantations from the little villages from the whole area. From 7 o'clock, they converged on the clinic, and... By 10 o'clock, there were hundreds of them. It was an incredible scene. Uh, people had walked for miles to be there, queuing up desperate for medical help, uh, help that they couldn't afford, things that we take for granted like antiseptics, antibiotics, painkillers, blood pressure tablets, and the like, other medicines that we, 
we can get in any chemist. And I find it profoundly moving to see the sight of so many people, uh, the poverty of the resources and the great need, and then wending their way back to their little villages, clutching the precious medicine. Couldn't help but think of the words in the Gospels where we read that Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them. And these words in Mark 1:33 that the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. What joy there must have been in the community that evening after this healing campaign of our Lord. And yet, do you not think that there's something surprising in each of these incidents? In fact, you'll find that almost the whole way through Mark's gospel, in almost every incident, there's a twist in the tail, a sting in the tail, if you like. There's something that we wouldn't expect. And it seems to me that very often the lesson that Mark is teaching us comes in that twist in the tail. The, the incident at one hand seems obvious, but there's something about it which I think is not so obvious. Take, for example, uh, chapter 1, verse 37. It's the next morning after that healing campaign. The people have gathered in, in their hordes to be healed. Jesus has got up early in the morning to pray and be alone. But the crowds are gathering early in the morning for healing. Peter comes saying, Lord, everyone's looking for you. And what an opportunity for Jesus to extend his healing campaign, demonstrate his compassion, and also in many ways make his ministry known. What a great publicity it, it should be. But what an unexpected reply. Let's go somewhere else, he says, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also, for that is why I came. Probably not the answer that Peter expected, maybe not the answer that we might expect. Opportunity missed as far as perhaps many of us would be concerned. Chapter 1, verse 40, he meets a man with leprosy and filled with compassion. We're told he heals him. But then this strange thing, he warns him strictly, don't tell anybody, keep it quiet. And of course the man doesn't and Jesus can't enter any towns uh, without being recognized immediately. Then this incident, chapter 2, where he's come back to Capernaum and what's he doing? He's in a house but he's preaching the word. But the sermon's interrupted by the man coming down through the roof. He's a man who's very obviously paralyzed let down by four resourceful friends. What a tremendous act of faith on their part and great determination. What expectation they must have uh, looked to Jesus with as uh, waiting to see what he was going to say. What a disappointment when he said to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. What a letdown that must have been to, to the man. That's not what he was hoping for. That's not what the crowd was expecting. Or to quote a friend who came to one of our Bible studies, he's a very regular churchgoer and a churchman. He said, I don't think Jesus was very Christian in this case. And I think I understand what he, what he means. In other words, Jesus is not the kind of Christian that we might expect him to be. He doesn't do things that perhaps we as Christians would expect. There's always this sting or this twist in the tail. But I think these incidents draw attention to a very live issue in the evangelical church today. What are our priorities in Christian mission? Is the priority to care for people's physical and material needs or for their spiritual needs? Should we focus on the body or should we care for the soul? Should we seek to improve people's conditions in this life or is our great task to prepare people for the life to come? 
Now, some Christians take opposing views. Some criticize Christian missionaries who engage in social ministry, and they say, look, we are not social workers. We are called to preach the gospel and save souls. Isn't that how perhaps some would speak? Others quote Francis of Assisi, who uh, I'm not sure if he meant it the way we interpret it, but at any rate, he said, preach the gospel at all times, but only if necessary, use words. In other words, we show the love of Christ by what we do rather than what we say. So what do these incidents teach us about this issue? Well, I just want to say two very simple things. One is that Jesus quite clearly here models a ministry of compassion and care for the physical and material needs of the people. That is inescapable. The lame walked, the blind received their sight, the lepers were cleansed, the hungry were fed. And so as Christians, clearly we should follow his example. We must do the same as he did. But if that's not sufficient reason to be involved in a ministry of compassion, let me give you five more. Uh, number two, the character of God. We're reminded that God created not a spiritual world alone, but a physical and material world. He, he made us not with bodiless souls, but he gave us bodies that get hungry. And as I quoted C.S. Lewis the other day, God likes matter. He invented it. It's his world. He made people who need food. And in fact, in the new creation, Isaiah speaks of that day when there will be no more hunger and everyone will feast on the best of food and the finest of wines, Isaiah 25, verse 6. Therefore, to care for people's bodily needs is simply to reflect the character and nature of God. And furthermore, God is not only a God who made a physical world, but he's a God of justice and compassion. And again and again, we are reminded that he is the God who upholds the widow and the fatherless, Psalm 146. He commands his people to defend the rights of the needy, Proverbs 31, especially the alien and the stranger, Deuteronomy 24. And he rejects as meaningless the worship of those who fail to plead the cause of the oppressed. So we have the example of Jesus, we have the character of God, but then we have the plain teaching of Jesus as well. He demonstrates to his disciples not only the priority of humble service when he washed their feet, but in the story of the Good Samaritan, he, he reminds us that we owe this service not only to each other, not only to fellow believers, but to all who have need. That's who our neighbor is, and that means even those that we traditionally consider our enemies. In another place, he says, when you hold a, a party, don't invite your friends or brothers, but invite the poor, the blind, the lame, and the crippled who cannot repay you. In other words, we do acts of love with no strings attached. You don't need to have a tract in the sandwich, if you like, to, to make it a justifiable act of love. We do it with no strings attached because it reflects the character and the teaching of Christ and of God, our Heavenly Father. Indeed, it's, it's the great commandment, isn't it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we should be in no doubt whatsoever that Christians are called to care for the bodily and material and physical needs of our neighbors. And thirdly, of course, fourthly, we have the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle John says, if anybody has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Can he really be a Christian at all? I think that's what John is saying. If we're a true Christian, it should be part of the heart of love to care for people in need. Hebrews 13, don't forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have entertained angels unawares. 
James 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And then he goes on, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food. If anybody says, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Faith by itself without action is dead. So there's a fourth reason if we needed a fourth one. Here's a fifth one. We have the example of the early church. The early church who sacrificially pulled their resources, sold their belongings to give to anybody in need in Acts 2 verse 45. And then Paul urges the Gentile churches to give generously to supply the needs of famine-stricken brothers down in Jerusalem. They appoint the first deacons uh, to distribute food to needy widows who had no state pension or welfare state to help them. And it's very interesting in uh, the early years of the church that there's correspondence between some pagan leaders. And in the correspondence, they're rather embarrassed that the Christians are caring for the pagan poor more than the pagans were caring for them themselves. These Christians, he, the writer was saying, are showing us up by their care for the, the poor. Here's a sixth reason, and that's the history of the evangelical movement in the church. It has always been at the forefront of improving social and environmental conditions. It was only after William Wilberforce's conversion that he was passionately moved by the plight of slaves. He gave the next 46 years of his life trying to put bills through Parliament, facing opposition and ridicule and misrepresentation and disappointment on the way to finally abolishing the slave trade. He succeeded, and I think it was three days after he succeeded that he died. He gave his whole Christian life to fighting this evil only after his conversion. Elizabeth Fry became a Christian and began to promote prison reform, schools for nursing care and care for those with mental disability. Dr. Bernardo, George Miller, Charles Haddon Spurgeon all instituted orphanages to care for needy children. Ashley Cooper or Lord Shaftesbury fought the cause of children being exploited in the factories and the mines and took bills into Parliament to, to bring in better conditions. Almost all of the founding fathers of modern science were Christians. Newton, Boyle, Faraday, Maxwell, and I could name at least a dozen other names. Almost all of them had a concern to improve this world through the benefits of science. Cicely Saunders, a Christian, founded the hospice movement to care for the terminally ill. And Francis Collins, who has just headed up the team that has unraveled the human genome, is a committed evangelical Christian. So if we're in any doubt whatsoever about whether or not we should be caring for the compassion and needy, let me suggest there are at least six reasons that we should. The character of God, the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, the example of the early church, and the tradition of the evangelical movement. So there's point one of two points, but point two is the other side of the coin, because Jesus also modeled the absolute priority of preaching the gospel to the people. Sometimes we say things like, you know, deeds speak louder than words. And who gave more time to good deeds than our Lord Jesus Christ? But yet he says to Peter, as the crowds throng for more healing, let us go to the nearby villages so that I can preach the word there also. And then he adds this phrase, for that is why I came. So he did not allow the compelling priority of caring for people's bodily needs to divert him from his main purpose, which was to preach the word 
of the gospel. And I think the second thing that we naturally do is we naturally, as human beings, give more attention to people's physical needs than their spiritual. And I think the reason for that is because physical needs are obvious needs. Here's a man let down through the roof, and he had an obvious need. He, had, uh, he was lame. He was crippled. He needed reconstructive surgery or some other kind of healing. That was very obvious. And when people are hungry, it's obvious that Christians should feed them. When they're sick, it's obvious that we should try to bring healing to them. All of that is obvious. But when our Lord Jesus Christ turns to this man and says, your sins are forgiven, he's pointing beyond his obvious need to that need which is not obvious. Sometimes in the whole seeker-sensitive movement in the church, we're told that we need to attend to people's felt needs. We need to answer the questions people are asking. But one of the great tasks of the church is to raise questions that people are not asking and to point at needs that people don't realize that they have. When we care for people's material needs, we will probably get applause from the world around us. But when we point to the gravity of their sin and their eternal predicament, we're very likely to be told and uh, keep our ideas to ourselves and don't shove those down people's throats. A doctor who gives painkillers to a patient who has a pain in the tummy and is satisfied with that is a bad doctor because it may very well be that the trouble inside requires surgery. It may be a serious cancer. And by simply attending to the obvious need, he may miss the even more serious need. Our business as Christians is to point beyond the obvious to that which is not obvious. That's why our Lord says, I'm going to go elsewhere to preach the gospel because that is why I came. But thirdly, I think people naturally focus more readily on time than on eternity. And who did more to making this world a better place during his short life than our Lord Jesus Christ? He was always trying to improve the conditions of those that he met. And yet he says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And again he says, don't fear those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, the fate of the body is not the most important thing. The fate of what happens to us in this life is not the most important thing. It's even more important what happens to us in eternity. Imagine for a moment that we could somehow communicate with that paralyzed man now healed in heaven. And if we were to ask the question, you had two healings. One healing that cured your body for another 20 or 30 years of active life in this earth. And then you had the healing of body, mind, soul, and spirit for all eternity in heaven. Which was the more important healing? I don't think we need to debate the answer. And so the conclusion is, I think we have the great commandment to go and love our neighbors. We need to go and do it. We have the great commission to go and make disciples of, of all the nations. We need to go and do that too. But the point I think we need to make is that not every Christian can do everything. For example, some Christians may feel drawn to social caring, to nursing, to medical care, to community development. That's their calling from God. Others may feel that they're gifted and talented for the work of evangelism. Each should honor the other, just as the apostle said, you care for the widows, 
and we give ourselves to the work of prayer and the preaching of the Word. So there should be no question which we do. We do both, though it may be that God will call each of us in a slightly different direction in the great scheme of things. So let me finish by giving you three or four little illustrations or incidents which I think reflect the interplay between evangelism and social action. And I'm not trying to work out some relationship between the two, whether they're two wings of a bird, as some people put it, which I don't think is a very good analogy, or partners, whatever way you want to put it, we don't need to put a name on it. But let's just see how these things interplay with each other. I think of Harvey Kahn, who was a missionary in the Philippines, working among uh, peoples in Manila, There were prostitutes in the community, and they tried to interest them with the gospel, and they showed no interest whatsoever. No matter how much they tried to preach to them, no interest whatsoever. But as he sat down and began to talk to these young girls, he discovered that they'd been lured from the the rural districts into the city with the promise of work and money and so on. But very soon they discovered that money had been loaned to them, there was no work, and the only way they could pay back the money was they were brought into prostitution. they were prisoners of, the, of this slave trade, much as the battle that's been fought in Belfast at the moment. So here were young girls who were caught in a trap. They didn't want to be prostitutes, but they had no way out. And once Harvey Kahn discovered this, he reported it to the authorities. He helped them to break this vicious cycle and to give these young girls trades and opportunity for work. And he tells how once he began to do that, they flooded into the church. And one by one, they came to Christ. Now, he didn't do it with an ulterior motive. He did it out of sheer concern for them in their need. But sometimes when we care for people or when we fail to care, we will discover that in the process, if we don't care, they're not able to hear the gospel in any case. He met their needs because they were there before him. But in so doing, he opened their hearts to the gospel. I was very struck by an article in the London Times, and I happened to notice, I didn't realize it was in the the magazine for this conference by Matthew Paris, an atheist, a journalist for the London Times. He spent a whole lifetime in Africa. And in this article, I think Christmas before last he wrote it, he compares the secular NGOs in Africa with Christian missions. And this is what he says. What I see in Africa contradicts my philosophy as an atheist. Food, education, and training are not enough. When the aid stopped, people returned to their former state. But I've observed that in Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. People are no longer passive. They stand tall. They are more open. They seem liberated in a way missing in traditional African life. And as an atheist, I've come to the belief that Africa needs God and the gospel, it needs missionaries even more than it needs aid. Those are the words of an atheist journalist who spent a lifetime in Africa. Let me give you a third example, which is maybe slightly uh, to the side of what we're discussing this morning, but I think is not irrelevant to it. And that is in our work in Drogheda, we're we're trying to reach out with the gospel to that local community. And I've begun to notice that uh, Two things seem to be going together. Some people come to the gospel first, and then they're drawn to the gospel community because they've come to faith in Christ. But others come to the gospel community first, they're not yet Christians, and in the gospel community they're drawn to Christ. So sometimes they come to the community first, 
and sometimes it's to the gospel message first. But it seems to me those two things must always go together, the gospel message and the gospel community. Here's how John puts it. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love God and love one another, God lives in us and his love is made manifest. A lot of people don't believe in God. They can't see God, says John. Same in Drochera in the year 2012. They can't see God and they don't believe in God. But when they come across something that seems somehow to uh, be different than they find elsewhere in society, they experience the love of Christ among God's people, that is the first step in the beginning to believe that there really is a God. I think, for example, of some Chinese students who began to come to the church. And eventually, after coming for some weeks, indeed even months, they came out to our house for a Bible study. They spoke Pigeon English. Uh, it was quite difficult to do the study with them, but I asked them the question, what on earth brought you to the church? And of course, I was quite sure it was my brilliant sermons and that sort of thing. Well, they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. They didn't know anything. They didn't understand the sermons at all. But it was a cup of tea. They said, it's the only place in the town where we're welcomed. Brought in for a cup of tea, and then people would bring them out to their home and show them hospitality, and they found out nowhere else. And they wanted to know why, what's going on in this place. And then they were drawn to the Bible study. So it seems to me that we need not only to have a gospel message clearly preached, but a gospel community that reflects that message. And then sometimes people coming to the community first begin to believe in God and are drawn to the gospel. But let me close with a fourth and quite, a, I suppose, a solemn illustration. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as you know, was a former physician to the Prime Minister and the King of England. He was a brilliant diagnostician and was heading right to the top of medicine in, in London. But suddenly, it seemed in his mid-twenties, he left medicine to go to a little run-down Welsh Presbyterian chapel in Aberavon in a pretty run-down community and to give the rest of his life to preaching the gospel. And people were appalled. They said, how can you give up such a good work? Uh, they'd said things to him like if you were a, a bookie, we could have understood it. In fact, they even said, and I'm sorry for any lawyers here, they said, if you were a lawyer, we could understand you giving that up for this. But a doctor doing all this good work and giving that up to preach the gospel. Here's what he said. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is healthy, he's all right to the end. But if a man has a healthy body and a diseased soul, he is all right for maybe another 60 years or so. But then he must face an eternity in hell. Sometimes we must give up things which are good for that which is best of all. So what is our priority as Christians? Well, we have an absolute priority to show the love of God by caring for people's physical and bodily needs. There should be no doubt at all in our minds that that's our commitment. And yet that commitment must never become an excuse to neglect our solemn responsibility to share the word of God and the gospel, for that alone can save and heal a person for time and for eternity. Let's take a moment to pray. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.